0: Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 125 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother, Andrew. Hello. And my husband, Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. Hello, everyone.
1: Wait, wait, Bailey. What? Sorry. I just want to point out, you're at 125, which is, again, where we started.
0: I know. I've done it. (laughs) Four years in. (laughs)
2: Nice.
0: I keep making progress and keep buying new books. It's just who I am. But I mean, the people love me, right? It's almost as if
2: it's the concept of our podcast.
0: (laughs) The people. (laughs) Saying the people reminds me I've been, this past week, I've been on jury duty. I've been trying to get on a jury. I haven't officially been on the jury. But it's been interesting because instead of saying like, you know, the prosecutor, they say the people. (laughs) I think it would be cool to just be like, the people rest.
3: You know how many books you get to read while waiting?
0: <laughs> I know. That's what I was excited for, but I didn't get to read them. Oh, that much. nice. Because I really want to be on a jury. Do you think I'll get on a jury? No. <laughs> no.
1: Uh, yeah. I think the fact that you want it so badly is karmically guarantees you will not have it. <laughs> hey, you're too thirsty for it. You're,
0: too thirsty.
2: you're too thirsty for justice. <laughs>
0: Uh, I love it. There's a part where it's like, is there anything else we should know? I should be like, I really want to be on the jury. Please. Thank you. (laughs) That
2: would get you
1: immediately discarded. (laughs) Yeah. 100%. Uh,
0: Well, we'll find out on Monday. I, I have been called to jury duty. This will be the third time, but I still haven't been able to speak at jury duty. It's like I wait for a bit. This time I got called into the room. You know, I got to sit down. They, they interviewed the two people ahead of me. The person right in front of me got dismissed. And then it came to me and the judge said, OK, now we're breaking for the weekend. See you on Monday. So I haven't gotten to talk yet. Oh. <laughs>
2: He saw your face and he's like, we're going to end this about four hours early. Um, You all can go home.
0: We can't deal with this right now. (laughs) Uh, Have you guys been on juries? No.
2: No, it's also it's been a while since I've been called. Yeah, I got called for the first time I'm going in July. But you know who's been called up three times? My wife, who was not a citizen until recently. (laughs) So she kept having to call back and be like, um... I I literally can't. I'm not allowed to. And they'd be like, okay, we'll see you in like two months when we ask you again. And she'd be like, please don't.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Love it. Um, Guys, I do have to admit some personal shame, which is that we have to do two corrections.
1: So wait, have we opened a can of worms by saying that we will do yeah, corrections I now? I think
3: we might,
0: I think we might have. Uh,
1: I mean, it's good to be right, I guess.
3: Uh, so first off, Pride and Prejudice was not written by Taylor Jenkins Reid. That was on us. <laughs> I'm so
0: sorry. <laughs> um, okay, so the man who plays Darcy, it's not pronounced Matthew McFadden.
2: Oh. Wow, this is a really significant
1: wait, correction. Wait, it's, Mc, it's McFadden, right? Apparently. That's what I said.
0: Well, I said McFadden, so that's on me. And, (laughs) and you know what? I should know that, um... So, yes, that, that is true. Also, this is my deep shame. Um, a. Pedro wrote in to say, guys, um, the Nobel Prize is not given to a specific book. It's given to a person. Their are And I think, I don't know if it was Toby or Andrew, but you guys said, are you sure? It wasn't to the person. I'm like, nope, it was just to this book. So I'm so sorry. Olga it was It's to yeah, all it's of you. Yeah, it's a
1: cumulative award. I, I will say I knew that and I didn't want to be a big old jerk. Yeah. Here's the thing. When Bailey is
3: presented with different evidence, she is capable of changing her mind, making her a good juror, if the judge is listening to this. (laughs) Yes.
0: I am willing to admit when the evidence says what it says. I will just defend myself and say my um, testimony is that Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead is the book that had been most recently published in English before she got the prize. So, you know, therefore, I'm right.
2: Your case is full of holes, Bailey. Case closed. (laughs) Yes.
0: Do you guys have any corrections to make any shame that you have to share?
1: Um, No corrections, because, of course, I vet everything I say
2: before saying it. No, I I don't want people to say what I get wrong on this (laughs) podcast, but we'll see. Pajos, we do edit out several minutes of silence before Andrew talks every time. It's quite (laughs) tedious.
1: Yeah, it's the worst. Um, I have a little piece of shame, and I guess it's sort of a shame and a correction in that this is a shame from before the last episode, and I just forgot oh. about it. Ooh. Um, I think this book has like become pretty popular on either Book Talk or Bookstagram. I'm not super plugged into those, so I didn't see this. But all of a sudden, a lot of people have been mentioning it on Twitter and things. And it's called uh, This Is How You Lose the Time War. It's co-written oh, yeah. by Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. Um, and it looks really cool. I picked up a copy because it was on a display in a... Um, cool bookstore in the town near me called Socrates, called The Inquiring Mind oh. and I'm excited to check it out.
0: I've seen this all over Instagram. It looks great. Toby, do you have any shame?
2: No. <laughs> and no corrections.
0: I forgot I have shame. Uh. <laughs> uh, I.
1: Oh, and then after you say your shame, I'll tell you how many books I've read. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. um i did pass the little free library on our street and there was a brand new hardcover copy of sea of tranquility by emily st john mandel and i picked it up. oh wow it was one of those things where you feel like you found a secret treasure because it's like not even like a scuffed up copy like it looks like this person was given it as a gift and they just like i don't want that brand new book
1: they must have already had a copy of it or
3: maybe emily <laughs> is trying to do some viral marketing
0: Maybe could be. Mm-hmm. Um, what if she's our neighbor? Anyway, I think it's on one or both of your lists. So I yeah.
2: think she lives in Toronto. Oh,
0: okay. So no. <laughs> Interesting that you know that. Um,
2: I, I only know that because I follow her on Instagram. She has a fun social media profile. Yeah. Yeah. I, re- I refuse to keep talking about how much I love Emily St. John Mandel's Instagram. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but is it on your list, Andrew?
2: Yes, it is on my list. I have a copy of it.
0: So, yeah. So at some point we'll we'll be covering that. But Andrew, shame us in telling us how many books you've read so far this year.
1: So I forgot to announce this last episode. But despite all the haters out there saying that I was setting myself up for failure, (laughs) that I was. Yes. Specifically, (laughs) despite all the Toby. um, (laughs) Right before the last episode we recorded, I um, hit my 42 book goal. So, Shadaisy, um, <laughs> and since then I've added four more. So I've read forty-six books, and I am officially one hundred and ten percent through my reading goal of the year, and twenty-nine wow. books ahead of schedule. So we, <laughs> wow,
0: you know, peek behind the curtain. We recorded exactly a week ago. Are you saying that you read four books in the past week?
1: Yes. Wow. Wow. I read Looking for Alaska, The Boys in the Boat, A Darker Shade of Magic, and
2: Fat Witch Summer.
0: Ooh. Oh man. That's a good week. That's an excellent yeah. week. Andrew, props to you. I'm two books behind.
2: <laughs> I'm five books ahead.
0: Ooh, good job.
2: Normally, I'd be proud of that, but Andrew's really stolen that from me. He's another <laughs> thing Andrew's taken from you me. You should be proud of it.
1: Your goal is also much higher than mine.
2: That's true.
0: Andrew's taken so much from us. <laughs> uh,
1: well, Toby, you had an opportunity to get one more book on your on your goal
2: down. Did you take uh-huh. it? uh I did read a book this week to, you know, <laughs> Bailey not going to say that this week because we're talking to Lizzie Ives, but I get to say it. Uh, I did read a book this week. I read Streets of Laredo by Larry McMurtry. Dog, dog. <laughs> That's what I assume. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Very nice. Um, I, this book is so long, I didn't manage to get a log line. So this is my log paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, already a promising start to your review Toby if I may <laughs> say. thank you thank you um, so when young handsome train robber Joey Garza begins to shoot his way across the southwest leaving a trail of bodies in his wake the powers that be call upon Captain Woodrow Call the most famous Texas Ranger of all time to hunt him down and bring him in dead or alive Ooh. the plot line doom da, doom da, <laughs> doom, da, doom, da, doom <laughs> The plotline of Larry McMurtry's Streets of Laredo might sound like a boilerplate western, complete with outlaws, señoritas, whiskey, and noble lawmen, but the desolate, world-weary tone of the novel, along with McMurtry's sullen insistence on the avoidance of action at all costs, means that Streets of Laredo's exploration of age, purpose, violence, and the inherent worthiness of both America and civilization itself come to the forefront, often at the expense of reader interest.
0: Showing your cards there, uh-huh. cowpoke.
2: Watch <laughs> <laughs> um, so right. Deadwood already, Bell. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so Streets of Laredo is a sequel um, to the very famous and extremely successful book, Lonesome Dove, by the same author.
3: Too lonesome, too dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: In that book, we see the already old and retired Texas Ranger Captain Woodrow Call, as he leads a team of retired Texas Rangers on a cattle drive from North Texas to Montana. Uh, The group calls themselves the Hat Creek Outfit, and their adventures on the cattle drive are moving, suspenseful, and inherently exciting. There's a ton of violence, and things get very, very bleak. But throughout that book, there is a sense of action and a clear love of genre. Um, by Larry McMurtry so I did and I still do heartily recommend Lonesome Dove okay now in Streets of Laredo um, many of the same characters are present from Lonesome Dove only they're all sadder and all older than they were in Lonesome Dove uh, which for Captain Woodrow Call is certainly saying something
0: they're more lonesome
2: (laughs) yes exactly uh, Lonesomer Dove would have been a, a really good title. So McMurtry uses uh, Woodrow Call's pursuit of the truly demonic outlaw Joy Garza to bring in an extremely large cast of characters, some old, some new. And we sort of hop through their heads as the novel very, very, very slowly tells us the story of the chase. That is the whole plot of the book. There is nothing more complicated than that, which is fine. Lonesome Dove essentially is just a cattle drive, and that works great. This one, however, ellipses. Works better?
0: <laughs> just for people that, you know, are me, what's a cattle drive?
2: Uh, a cattle drive is you have a herd of cattle, usually like a hundred to several hundred cattle, and uh, cowboys men on horseback uh, guide the cattle across the land. So they kind of herd this big herd uh, across hundreds of miles. It's extremely difficult. There's like all sorts of natural obstacles. And then in this time and era, there are dangerous people, including Native Americans and then other outlaws. And it's, you know, it's an exciting time. So that's Hmm. what a cattle drive is. It
0: does sound less exciting than the plot of this one. So the fact that Okay.
2: (laughs) That's true. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Well, I have a little bit of insight here. I did a little bit of research on this book and it clarified something for me. So apparently, uh, McMurtry was not too stoked on the reception of Lonesome Dove. Um, It is very clearly a literary novel and it is very clearly... Supposed to be critical of the kind of shining heroes of 50s westerns. Captain Call and his crew are not pure-hearted heroes, and the problems they encounter during their cattle drive, especially the plight of literally any woman in the West at that time, are beyond grim. However, there is a certain amount of fun to be had in the book. This is Lonesome Dove. The plot moves along, and the book, while very long, doesn't feel like a slog. Uh, His critique of the Western genre and of American nostalgia for that time is very present if you look for it in Lonesome Dove. Apparently, a lot of people didn't look for it. (laughs) They love Lonesome Dove. They said, this is such a great Western story. I love Westerns. Isn't the Western time period so great? And McMurtry didn't like that because it was supposed to be a critique of that uh, time period and of those stories. So, in my mind, in the Streets of Laredo, McMurtry triples down on all the depressing stuff and strips away all of the fun. <laughs> so, okay, great. Um, and when he strips away the fun, he replaces it with brutality. There is not much fun in this book. Not that the goal of every book should be to be fun, but in Streets of Laredo, things are so awful, it would be funny if it wasn't depressing. <laughs> um, I'll jump into my elves real quick. McMurtry is an incredible writer. Let's get that out of the way. His writing can be sharp as a knife. His dialogue can be utterly fantastic. His characters are truly great. And a lot of the misery of reading this book comes from the fact that such awful things happen to characters that you really do care about. So everything that made Lonesome Dub great is still present in this book. It's just some of it is missing. Another large elf, um, or basically my only... Not my only other elf, but, you know, there are many small ones that I won't mention. But my other main elf is that particularly Lorena, the ex-sex worker and somewhat minor character, in lonesome dove that has a much bigger part in this novel, is fantastic in this book. I think that McMurtry's characterization for her and her general plot line of Lorena, um, her love for her husband P.I. and the things that she is forced to do to help him generate the most steam, the most emotion and the most excitement in the whole book. So I really want to call her out as a favorite part of the book for me.
0: Mm, Okay. Yeah.
2: The plot of the book is is so not in a bad way thin, but there's just not too much plot in the book. So I can't really tell anything that happens. Um, (laughs) But with that said, I'll jump into my orcs. Um, Without any let up on the depression gas pedal, this book turns into a slog. It is as long as the very long lonesome dove. Um, Many, many times throughout the book, various characters kind of like turn their heads to the sky and question why they should continue living at all when life is such hell and at such times i myself felt myself questioning why i wanted to keep reading this book (laughs) because it was so grim so it's a bit of a slog it's a lot of a slog uh joey garza can be very scary um but as a villain he's pretty one note and his motivation might have seemed more groundbreaking at the time but i don't think so this came out in the early 90s so as a bad guy he's pretty one note another orc is that a lot and i mean a lot a lot a lot of McMurtry's writing in this book has to do with the violence against women. I feel sure that if you were to do a page count, I feel like over a hundred pages of this book would be descriptions of violence against women. Um, now I know that this thing's happened. I know it's a part of what McMurtry wanted to show, but it's way, way too much. He makes his point and then some over and over and over again. So not great. Mm. Uh, finally, uh, another another orc is that this book is just incontestably so male and so macho uh, that I think in this day and age to a modern audience, it almost gets a little bit silly. I think that McMurtry intentionally makes some of his characters over the top macho, and he is critiquing them to a certain degree. But it's kind of like there's an underlying love of this kind of machismo that he just can't hide it does shine through that he still does believe like that you should drink a big full cup of testosterone in the morning Um, so (laughs) you don't (laughs) i I mean i do (laughs) Um, no but yeah so you know there are many orcs overall I enjoyed parts of the book, but I felt in the end like McMurtry was writing with a chip on his shoulder, uh, trying to prove to the world that he was even more serious than everyone already thought he was, um, which is kind of silly because at this point in his career, he's already extremely successful, extremely well-respected. If you want to read McMurtry, I would still recommend Lonesome Dove. If you want to read uh, him at his bleakest, um, but a better version of it and a much shorter version, I'd recommend his other very famous book, The Last Picture Show. That's a very good book, Uh, very bleak, but much shorter. This one, I just can't strongly recommend. I didn't hate it, but it did let me down because I was so excited to read it. So I'm going to give it three stars.
0: Ooh, okay.
2: Eh. (laughs) 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 Thank you,
1: Andrew.
0: Okay, Andrew, do you have any facts on Mr. McMurtry?
1: Oh, do I? (laughs) Boy, howdy. (laughs) So Larry Jeff McMurtry was born on June 3rd. Happy birthday. We're recording this on June 4th, Uh, 1936 in Archer City, Texas. He spent his childhood there as well, living on his parents' ranch. And the town that surrounded where he grew up, um, Archer City, inspired the town Talia, which um, is a setting in a lot of his other books um he wrote in a memoir that there weren't many books around in his early childhood but that his family had a strong practice of telling stories together just out on the porch um mm. though eventually he developed a, a liking for mysteries and adventures he got like a crate of a uh, boys adventure books from some cousin at one point and that really set him on his path
2: nice and his family sent away for
1: the collected works of charles dickens right yeah absolutely um he went on to attend the University of North Texas for his undergrad and then Rice University for his masters and then he ran into some podcast stalwarts. <gasps> oh. Yeah, he rolled deep. <laughs> so he was a Wallace Stegner fellow Ooh, at Stanford in hello. 1960. Yeah. However, Wallace Stegner himself uh, was actually on sabbatical during his year so he didn't have that much <laughs> interaction with him.
0: <laughs> but still, <he laughs> I'm finally going to meet Wallace Stegner.
1: <laughs> I'm sure he met him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he, yeah so he didn't study directly under him um however he had several illustrious classmates and one uh ken kesey Ooh, uh, who whoa. he came quite close with is probably the best known of those uh classmates Ooh, wow
3: friend and dealer of the podcast <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's two of our uh, previous attendees uh showing up in force yes yes nice um after stanford mcmurtry returned to texas and worked as a lecturer and professor at various institutions in 1964 Keezy stopped by McMurtry's house in Houston, not alone, but with the Merry Pranksters in their Glow painted bus named Further, an episode which appears in Tom Wolfe's The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Wow. There's another oh, cool. one who's yeah. shown up on this podcast.
0: I'm, I've almost Jeez. got a bingo. I've almost got a bingo. Wait, is
1: that what inspires the cattle drive in Lonesome Dove? <laughs> <laughs> Um, Throughout the 60s and 70s, McMurtry worked as a professor and even left Texas sometimes. Uh, But most (laughs) importantly, he was actually having real success with his writing. His first novel, Horseman Pass By, published right after he left Stanford, was adapted into the Paul Newman film, HUD. Which you might have heard of. Yeah. Um, And it was followed by two more books in what would be called... Thalia, a Texas trilogy, uh, 1963's Leaving Cheyenne, which was adapted into a film called Love and Molly, and The Last Picture Show, which was adapted into The Last Picture Show. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. Mm-hmm. mm uh,
1: He was really well-recognized in his time, uh, winning many awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship. And in 1986, he won the Pulitzer Prize for none other than Lonesome Dove.
0: Heck yeah. And that's when you win for the book.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. I was about to make fun of you, and I decided not to, but thank you for giving me the opportunity. Yes, you do win for the book there. (laughs) He published many other works of fiction, nonfiction, and memoir, um, including uh, a book you might have heard of, uh, 1975's Terms of Endearment, um, which was also adapted into quite a famous film. And in 1991, he wrote a book called Streets of Laredo. It actually... Turns out that he wrote this book in the aftermath of a heart surgery and while suffering from severe mm. depression. Oh. oh.
0: Wow.
2: Well, that tracks.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah I was going to say, this seems to make sense. Uh, so he wrote the book. He was staying with a woman whose name is Diana Osana, um, who is his writing partner on a lot of different things. Uh, he mm. was staying with her while he recovered. And he wrote the entire book at her kitchen counter. But don't you forget about Diana Osana because she would go on to win an Academy Award with Larry McMurtry for their adaptation of E. Annie Pru's Brokeback Mountain. They wrote the screenplay and accepted the uh, uh, Academy Award together.
0: I actually remember that that. speech. I didn't.
1: Because he wore jeans to the ceremony. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, he wore jeans and cowboy boots and thanked his typewriter and teachers, I believe. Love it. Uh, But not Wallace Stegner.
0: (laughs) The teachers that showed up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so he might have been a Pedro because outside of writing, he was passionate about books as physical objects. He had an extensive library, and after beginning collecting old and rare books while at Stanford, he went on to open several antiquarian bookstores. Hmm. They carried something like 450,000 titles. Um, and the biggest one, I believe, is, is called Booked Up. Um, it was in Archer, Texas, where he lived, and it became a local institution. In 2012, when McMurtry decided to downsize, the subsequent auction of the books uh, had people lined up for hours and hours and hours, and books were auctioned by the shelf. That's how many books there were. Wow. It was like, wow. OK, you've got to take <laughs> this, this like hmm. group of 40 books or something. And McMurtry said he'd never seen an event like it in that town. Um, guess what he named the event? Book auction. That's right, Love the last book, book sale.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs>
1: Quick note on his personal life. He married fellow English professor and writer Joe Scott. And before they divorced, they had a son named James, who would go on to become a singer-songwriter who is still active. He performs mm. under the name James McMurtry, so easy enough to find. Um, mm. He remarried in 2011 to none other than Norma Faye Keesey, Ken yeah. Kesey's oh. widow. And they remained together until McMurtry's death on March 25th, 2021.
0: Wow. I want to know more about mm. their love story.
1: And one last thing. I'm sorry to bring the sad news at the end of the facts, but you all just missed your chance to own a lot of McMurtry's possessions because his writing desk, typewriters, and book collection, along with other things, were sold at auction on May 29th, 2023 in San Antonio. Just missed it.
0: You said that um, the auction, the typewriter, what about the teachers?
1: Uh, The (laughs) teachers were not for sale, Bailey, because they were humans.
3: (laughs) What about his jeans?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, and yeah, and don't worry, uh, booked up in, in Archer, Texas did have a bookstore cat, and there was a picture of it on Wikipedia. Ooh, okay. Nice. Nice. And that is uh Larry Jeff McMurtry.
2: Awesome. Good facts, Andrew.
0: Excellent facts, <laughs> Andrew. Um, and that is streets of Laredo by Larry McMurtry, three stars. And now guys, this is very exciting. We have mm. on the podcast, the author of the book that I read, mm. I read this week a book called Fat Witch Summer, and we have the author Lizzie Ives here with us. Yay! Yay! Thank you for having me. Yay. We could just look up the facts about Lizzie, or we could have Lizzie here. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here.
2: Yeah, and to be clear, we did reach out to Jane Austen to try and do the same thing, but we never heard back, so.
0: The seance didn't go well in that case. Yeah. (laughs) And you guys read the book too, is that right?
2: That's correct. Yes, indeed.
0: Yay. We were all very excited that you were coming, Lizzie. So let's first talk about the book in general. (laughs) Fat Witch Summer is a YA fantasy book. The main protagonist is a fat witch, you could probably tell from the title, um, (laughs) named Thrash. (laughs) She's 16 and she is about to sort of transition to her last year of school during which people with magical powers can determine their type of magic they're going to follow. In this world, it's called a gift. And Thrash meets a group of cool girls, you might say like mean girls um, that she's very intimidated by but finds that maybe they're not so intimidating and they decide we're going to go on a road trip to uh, New Salem University which is I assume the equivalent of Salem on the other side of the country. They're going to (laughs) take a road trip and instead of accepting the gifts that their mothers give them which is how it works in this matriarchal society, they're going to steal their own gift and take it into their own hands. Um, And so the book is like a rollicking road trip romp that talks about friendship, the relationship obviously between mothers and daughters because there's tension with the mothers choosing the gifts. And it's just wonderful. Um, Did I miss anything, guys? Is there anything else I should talk about?
2: Only the deep lore of the Thirteen States, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there are, like, spoilers within it, but the book does take place in kind of an alternate United States that's called the Thirteen States, where the landmass of the United States is divided into thirteen sections that sometimes... I'd say most of the time you could recognize, like, okay, it's this part of the country. It's this part of the country. And it comes attendant, as many fantasy worlds do, with its own laws that are some of them are known. Some of them are secret. And I think one of my favorite parts of the book is, like many fantasy books, as the story progresses you get deeper and deeper into the secret sides of the 13 states and yeah i think that's one of the parts of the book that's really well done
1: yeah and the only thing i'd I'd want to throw in for context is not everybody in this world has magic innately in them they are like waiting for a sort of awakening which is their knack Mm -hmm. which is like Mm -hmm. oh you have the magic in you and then you're Therefore, eligible to receive a gift. Though it is a world where kindly the the magical people have uh, allowed non-magical people, or I think typicals, is what you say, Lizzie, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> to uh, to uh, have access to magic through like artifacts and wands and stuff. But only a certain section of the population is like true witches. Lizzie's like, you got it all wrong, actually.
4: <laughs> no, that was a really thorough and great explanation.
0: So we already kind of hinted at some of the elves, some of the things that we love about this book, but like. Right away, we have to highlight the world building. Also, the character building is just so rich. It just feels like all of these people are very well-rounded, and I relate to all of them. And I really liked the themes, as I mentioned before. But also, there's a big theme of body image and self-discovery, which I thought was... Very powerful. Well, we just have such a wonderful opportunity now to talk to Lizzie um, and hear more about what inspired the book and more about the world of the 13 states. Um, But first, we want to start with Lizzie, if Andrew, like you listen to the podcast, if Andrew were to write a bio about you and share the Wikipedia summary, what would he say? Where are you from? When's your birthday? Um, How many books have you written?
4: Um, Well, I was born in January, so for the astrology people out there, which I'm not even an astrology person, but um, I'm a Capricorn (laughs) sun, a Libra moon, and a Sagittarius rising. Okay, that says everything.
0: Yeah,
2: exactly. For someone who's not into astrology, that was pretty complete. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
4: I mean, I do think it is accurate. So if you're into astrology now, you know me like very deeply. Um, I was born in the San Francisco Bay Area. I have lived in California for most of my life, but I really love to travel, which probably comes across in the book. Um, And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, fantasy novels really give you like a way to travel as well in your mind. (laughs) This is my debut novel. But of course, you know, I had written other books before and queried them and they didn't go anywhere. Sometimes people are like, wow, this is so good for a debut. And I'm like, well, I mean, there were like three trash books before this.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Those earlier books, I assume they were Fat Witch Autumn, Fat Witch Winter, and Fat Witch Spring, correct? (laughs)
4: Uh, Alas, no, they were high fantasy, like dark high fantasy, um, which is like my original love. Um, But I do think one thing that was really cool when I wrote this book was I really felt like I found my actual Voice. Um, I went Mm. to film school. That's a fun part of my bio. And the films I made in film school were more like comedies and like they were kind of like surreal or like at least had magical realism components to them. And I had this hard time reconciling all throughout my 20s. Like, why am I writing like dark, high fantasy, which I love? And then I have like lighthearted comedy, which I also really love. It took me like 10 years to realize these things can go together. It
0: can be both. You yeah. don't have to choose one or the other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: That's yeah. great. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because, I mean, I'll just drop another elf in here. I like how kind of dark some of the parts of this can be. I think if you saw the book on the shelf, it has this wonderful cover where like the girls are having a great time, and they're convertible, and you just don't expect some of like the darker aspects of the book to come kind of creeping at you. And then when they do, I'm like, oh, yes.
1: Yeah, especially like the, the political side of things. I thought mm-hmm. that was not what I was expecting and a fun surprise.
4: I'm glad it's a good surprise. My worry is that mm-hmm. people might be like, oh, I was misled because the cover is just like sunshine rainbows. But to me, I feel like I, I want that. Depth as well, yeah. you know, definitely. Well,
2: I think too, we we live in like a, a time when you can find your audience, right? There is an audience for people who want to read a mixture of fun road trip with dark political intrigue and creepiness, you know. Not that not that it's a half and a half mixture, but you know what I mean. There's yeah. like a a very specific slice of the pie that you found.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
0: You live with your husband Ben and your wonderful cat Kiara, and. I think there's a little nod to Kiara in the book because the lake is named after her. Is that right?
4: It is. So my cat's name is Chiara Scuro because she's a black and white tuxedo cat. And, you know, mm-hmm. silly film mm-hmm. reference or art history reference, too. And, yeah, I had a friend who once could not remember my cat's name and spontaneously, with complete seriousness, thought her name was Chalala. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was a placeholder name for the longest time. Like, I love naming things that might have come across. And that one was a placeholder that I was like, it can't actually be called like Lake Chilala. And then I got to the end and I was like, I'm keeping it.
0: <laughs> well, you know, that's how we named our daughter. Maggie was like what? a placeholder name that we joked about. And then we got to a point where we're like, well, why isn't it just Maggie? <laughs> so I get you, it. You
4: get used to it. I spend a lot of time naming characters, especially because I know that once they're named, I'm not going to want to change it, So I really try to make sure, like, this mm-hmm. is the essence of who this person is before I start writing about them, because then there's kind of a point of no return where you're really attached.
0: So, for example, I'm curious how you come up with names. So the main character is Theodora. Who wants to go by Thrash? How did you come up with that?
4: Um, it's a combination of things, but I knew for the main character that I wanted her to have this grandiose name that didn't really fit her personality, and that she kind of had already like named herself. I think at the beginning of the book, she has. There's definitely room for growth, um, but she does know some things about herself. Like she does have her identity figured out for the most part, and that name specifically. I don't even know where it came from. I was just, I remember when I thought of it, I was sitting on a bench at LACMA and I was just like writing like like witchy words, adjectives, like Kreska, one of the friends that is clearly, you know, just like me thinking, can any of these witch words be names in this setting? Um, And yeah, Thrash just kind of came out of nowhere. And I was like, that's a wild protagonist name, but I think that's it.
0: I love it. I love it. So you say in the dedication, if you were told not to try and you did it anyway, this book is for you which every time I read it, I tear up a little bit. I'm going to be honest. Um, (laughs) But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your journey to publish this book and why you decided to do a Kickstarter for it.
4: Well, first, I just wanted to talk about the dedication, I guess. That was one of the last things I added to the book, actually. Um, The Kickstarter was a week or two away from launching and a friend of mine who I asked to review the page said, it's so cool how your journey mirrors thrashes. And I was like, what are you <laughs> talking about? <laughs> like, huh? And he said, yeah, the institutions basically tell her you have to be one way and she doesn't fit in the ways. And then she says, I'm doing it my own way. Like mm-hmm. I'm making space for myself in this world that doesn't have space for me. And that's what you're doing. And I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> that is, that's true, that's wild. Um, So that's where the dedication came from. Um, But yeah, it's just been kind of like a weird road where I wrote the book, um, I finished it in 2020, and then I wasted like two years querying agents and it actually was going really well. But I kept having people like back out at the last minute due to saying that there wasn't a market for the book. Like, oh, it's too niche. I couldn't see where it goes on a shelf in a bookstore. Absurd. I know. (laughs) And I was like, how is this possible when I can so clearly see where it fits on a shelf? And it was also so infuriating to hear, you know, like, wow, like it has so much depth and and the rich characters and the fun world building that's so unique. But how do I sell this? And I was like, this, ah, like, if this is the thing that defeats me, this is so frustrating. Um, and like, I, you know, I have like some graphic design skills. And my husband, Ben is a board game designer. So he's familiar with Kickstarter, And together we were just like, I mean, it just felt like a really big decision point of like after like 10 years of working on various books and this book feels like timely and I felt like really strongly there was a market for it. And I was just kind of like, I think it's now or never. So I just (laughs) said like, I think I have to launch this because if I don't, I'm just going to really regret it.
0: And then once you put it on Kickstarter, it just took off immediately. Like there was the market there. Yeah, it so
2: clearly existed as I hoped it did. That's so wild to me. This is like I've described the pitch to several people, and every single one of them is like, oh, yeah, I read that book. It's (laughs) like, you know, sometimes the powers that be or whatever just have no clue, it seems like, what's going on. This is such an easily pitchable and fun-sounding book. I don't know. I'm glad you went through with it.
0: Oh, thank you. I love how you include tropes of the genre, but you play with them a little bit. Um, An example is the gifts, like the classification of magic, like you might see in Harry Potter's Hogwarts houses or in Divergent, where people have to choose sort of a certain path. And I think you subverted as the book progresses. So I was curious, like, why did you decide to have these classifications? And how did you pick the three gifts? The
4: idea for the gifts came from, I knew that I really wanted them to represent like maiden, mother, crone, and how people really want to classify women as like one of only these three things of like, oh, which phase are you in?
0: So there are three gifts. It's glamour, growth, and sight. Um, Glamour is altering your appearance. Um, You might make yourself look more beautiful or it might be used for like a disguise. And then growth would be plants and um the natural world and healing and then sight is like being a seer and predicting the future and being a master of tarot
2: yeah speaking of the of the world building because it's so detailed like there's so much more it feels like there could be explored is there a fat witch gap year is there a sequel like rumbling around in that brain of yours
4: there definitely is (laughs) <laughs> yes. I really wanted the book to be able to stand alone um, because I hate reading a book that like ends on a cliffhanger and mm. is like, sorry, this was about making you buy the second book. So my goal was really yeah. to like make it so it could stand by itself. Um but yeah, it'll kind of depend on how the sales go, honestly. Like if there is an audience that it's worth putting like a couple years into having to write the sequel. But I mean, I have an outline and I can confirm it would be going to Europa and the gap year is absolutely happening. Ooh, so that which years exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I think a lot of people will leave this book and have I mean they'll have a lot of affection for all the main characters, but maybe special affection for a certain horse named Tempest <laughs> who gets some interludes where he gets to really say what he's thinking. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about wanting to bring in the the familiar aspect to it?
4: Yeah, so for those of you who haven't read the book yet, Um, Osmara Thrash's mother has a familiar who is a talking horse uh, because in this world, familiars are kind of like this um, embodiment of energy that are attracted to like a witch's power and they're hanging around for a ticket to have a mortal body for a period of time. So anyway, Tempest is a sassy horse that narrates these interludes (laughs) throughout the book that are just like a couple pages at a time. And where that came from was that I really wanted to show the pursuit of Osmara chasing her daughter and this group of friends down as they're trying to like flee. But I knew that to teenagers, parents are just inherently unknowable to some extent. And so I knew that like Osmara could not be the perspective for these little interludes. Um, So I wanted a way to check in on her. And I thought, you know, this, this sassy horse is the way to do
0: it. Nice. It's such a great, almost comic relief to just completely go to a completely different perspective of this, like really ornery horse that just like does not you know, (laughs) GAF.
4: I will say, and you might all be like shocked to hear this, but like Tempest is actually like the most polarizing thing in the book (gasps) where like you would think, Mm. I would think people would love these weird horse interludes. However, people like love them or hate them.
1: I would tie myself to a bookstore if that would keep Tempest in the books. I don't know exactly what protest I need to do, but I'm glad he's made it into the, into the final version.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, the last question that I have is something that we try to ask every guest on the podcast. Do you have a to read list? Do you have a problem with buying book shame? What does your to read list look like?
4: Okay, I feel like this is going to be a shocker, which is that my actual to read list of physical books is like 8 books <gasps> yes. I know it's, well and part of it's because I I hate to say it but like I don't have a book buying problem I kind of wish I
0: did yes. <laughs> uh, it's only cool if you have a book buying problem
4: I'm definitely like a easy come easy go when it comes to books like I only really keep on my shelf books that are like six star books to me where I'm like I'm go- like I think of it as like do I want this book in 20 years would I like force people to borrow it from my library and that's kind of like my exact. Thing. (laughs) like specifications for what I keep or not. And so I like do a lot of borrowing of books. But I will say I have like a digital list of books that are like on the like to read. And that is like... That's like 93 books. So if we count like a digital TBR, I'm just as bad as you are.
0: I was going to say, that sounds like Toby.
2: Finally, finally, (laughs) a voice of sanity the madness that is this podcast. Thank you, Lizzie.
0: Uh, I love it. Well, thank you so much for responding to our barrage of questions. Um, But I, I just love this book. It's just such an uplifting book, but at the same time brings up these serious themes. I loved all the characters. I love the world. I don't really have anything negative to say about it. For me... It's 100% a five-star book.
2: I'll say heartily agree, five stars. I think Bailey has given me some some grief in the past for not being too much of a YA reader. But I'm on the record for saying I love YA when it's well done. And I'd say this firmly falls into the well-done YA category. The fun of good YA to me is sinking back into that feeling of being a teenager when your emotions are intense and things are like, the stakes are so high, and then that mixed with this well made world with its dark elements. It's just fun. It's so much fun. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed reading it.
4: Oh, thank you. That means so much from the podcast's fantasy reader. <laughs>
1: I was like, what are wow, you know. going to think? <laughs> <laughs> and I also very much liked it.
0: <laughs> Anything else?
1: <laughs> no, I, I agree with it for all the reasons that you've, you've said. It was a really great read, and I'm, I'm really glad we got to have you on the podcast to talk about it and hopefully get to read more later on.
0: Yay, yes. Yeah. So, Lizzie Ives, where can people buy this book? At time of
4: podcast episode coming out, I think it will have come out yesterday, <gasps> far and wide, uh-huh. which is wild. I would say that if this book sounds cool to you, the sales in the first week actually have the biggest impact on the books like entire life basically because it really like pushes it up in online algorithms and like gets it on the radar of like booksellers and things so I'd be like go buy it ASAP please um but yeah it should be available like everywhere if your indie bookstore doesn't carry it you can ask them to order it and they can yeah it's just available everywhere books are sold
0: yay
4: yay it's okay
0: well thank you for coming on our podcast and I was wondering this is the time in the podcast where we play a little game would you like to stay and play a game with us
4: I will, although Yay! you are also good at the
2: games.
0: Oh, you're going to be awesome. If you,
2: if you think we're all good at the games, you must have been listening to some very select episodes.
4: <laughs> I know that Bailey's really good at trivia,
0: so... Oh, thanks, That's Lizzie. True. I know you're really good at board games, so, you know. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> Together we would be unstoppable.
2: <laughs> Andrew, I just think you're a handsome man, so there's a compliment
1: for you. There's a compliment for you. <laughs> well, good. Because this book's about math, so no one's, no <laughs> one's going to... This game's about math, so I hope everyone's prepared for this. Oh, no. So the game this week, I took inspiration from Fat Witch Summer, and it's called Cross Country Road Creeps. And the way the game is going to work is I have selected four sort of creepy-ish sounding popular roadside attractions in the United States, and I'm going to tell you the name of them, and I want you to tell me where you think it is. I, then using the magic of Google Maps, (laughs) will find out how far away you are in miles from where it actually was
4: oh my gosh
3: I this love is that a cumulative <laughs>
1: game so you want to have the lowest score at the end so ideally if you got them all right you'd have a score of zero at the end <laughs> however i'm imagining we're going to be in the thousands um because i'm going to give you no clue except for the name of the attraction
4: should our guess be a city like city comma state
1: yeah yeah city and state is the is the way to do it and i if you get the right city i'm not going to say like well you said the wrong street in houston so yeah. i'm gonna I'm not <laughs> gonna get that minute okay So, your first roadside attraction on this cross country road creep show is the Fremont Troll. (gasps) Seattle, Washington.
0: (gasps) The bridge in Seattle, Washington. (laughs)
1: Yeah,
2: I think the same thing.
1: I see all of you have seen the film 10 Things I Hate About You where they yeah. walk across the troll. <laughs> so yes, you, you are all correct. It is in the Fremont neighborhood of Fremont, Seattle, Washington. And oh, that was a great game, Andrew. Thank you. Zero <laughs> points for all of us. We all win. We're,
4: yeah, all tied for win.
1: <laughs> I had a little bit of a feeling that you might know that one. So we'll start you off with zero. Hey, great one. So now this time, okay. I have a feeling you guys won't know but it's an appropriate name. Where do you think Salem
2: Sue is?
0: How do you spell Sue? Like a person's S-U-E. name? S-U-E, the okay. name,
2: yeah, Salem Sue. I'll be the fool and say Salem, Massachusetts. All right, Salem,
1: Massachusetts, let me tally that up. I'll, I'll save the numbers for the end.
0: Uh, I'm gonna say Sleepy Hollow, New York.
1: Sleepy Hollow, New York, okay. <laughs>
0: um, I'm gonna say like Oklahoma
4: City. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Cool.
3: That's the prices right version of the
1: geography game, yeah. where it's like yeah, just exactly. guess the
3: opposite side. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So, Toby, with your guess of Salem, Massachusetts, you are off by only 1,773 miles. Wow. Bailey, you are slightly closer (sighs) by being only 1,670 miles away. Okay. And Lizzie is going to be the closest (gasps) um, because it is in New Salem, appropriately enough, North Dakota, (laughs) Oh! which means you're definitely closer than the East Coast guessers here, and you're only 966 miles away.
0: (laughs) Not even that much. Closer,
1: <laughs> Man. But I'll take um, it. That, I feel like that can make quite a difference as the game goes
0: on. <laughs> so, what is Salem Sue?
1: Salem Sue is the world's largest Holstein cow. So it's oh. actually a creepy thing, but it's named Salem Sue, so I had to throw it in.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: So it's a it's
2: a giant sculpture of a cow. Oh, it's not a living cow. I was like, this, you, you better hurry to go see it. <laughs> All right, the Abita Mystery House.
0: Ooh.
4: New Orleans, Louisiana.
0: Ooh.
2: Oh, that's a good guess.
0: Um, okay, I'm going to say Little Rock, Arkansas.
2: Mm. Okay, Little Rock, Little Rock. We have a New Orleans and a Little Rock. I'm going to Price's right it and say Boise, Idaho.
1: Is that Price's Writing it? Is <laughs> Boise, <laughs> Idaho.
2: Price is right. It's naming a city, so continue, Andrew. I don't need your sass. Toby, have you seen Price's right? <laughs> that's the one where they're all like gladiators from America, right? <laughs> Yeah. So I'm actually going to start you off
1: first, Toby, because you are well, by no. far the farthest away. <laughs> I feel like Lizzie might know where this is. Um, oh. But Toby, you are 2,065 miles away. <laughs> uh, Bailey, you are much closer, much closer, with only 403 miles away. Ooh. And Lizzie is by far the closest. It's not quite in New Orleans, but it's very close. It's in a city called Abita Springs, Louisiana, <gasps> and you are 43 wow. miles away.
4: Are you familiar with this place, Lizzie? No, I, I can't believe I'm killing this. So I am familiar with the beer, Abita Purple Haze. And I know that's a New Orleans beer. Ah. And so I was like, oh my gosh, the whatever brewing, I guess Abita Brewing Company, I was like, it's got to be somewhere in Louisiana.
0: Lizzie, you're killing it. Yeah, I can't believe this.
4: Does this mean everyone is like for sure going to be my friend? (laughs) Yes.
0: Lizzie's um, ultimate goal is to get you guys to be her friends. So how's she doing? That's actually
1: why I'm here. Yeah, well, winning the game is a very important first step. Um, Well, just to check Checking on the scores here real quick. Bailey, uh, actually, we'll go, we'll go, we'll start with Toby. Toby is <laughs> currently in last place <laughs> with, with a thing? cumulative oh, okay. score of 3,838. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. Bailey is in second with 2,073, and Lizzie is winning with only 1,009.
0: Ooh. Dang. Okay. However,
1: I happen to know that this one might throw up some big numbers here, so I think everyone is still safe in the game. Okay. But here's our final location. The International Cryptozoology Museum.
4: Los Angeles, California. Portland, Maine.
1: (gasps) Nome, Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) So Toby, really just going strong and potentially wrong or... A brilliant play. Uh, That's what I'm thinking. Alright, so, let me just tally up real quick. Both Bailey and Toby's answers are so far away, (laughs) so far away, that Google Maps is not giving me driving directions. (laughs) It has said, I can't find a way there. So, Lizzie is exactly correct. It's in Portland, Maine, so what? it's another zero on Whoa. the board. Oh my.
0: I did know this <laughs> museum existed. Andrew, we're from <laughs> Portland, Maine. I don't know that.
3: I
1: know. I only recently learned about it, which is why I threw it in, because I thought I would get a chance to say, gotcha, Bailey.
3: <laughs> you did. <I> mean,
1: <laughs> yeah, got. You got, got. Um, so I don't have the final numbers, but let's just say Lizzie wins with 1,009. <laughs> Bailey is probably somewhere in the, like, 5,500, and Toby is probably in the, like, high 9,000s. <laughs> <laughs> but congratulations, Lizzie. You are the winner oh of our cross country road <laughs> creep.
0: Wow.
4: I do really like travel. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: And Pejos, before you accuse us of rigging this game so that Lizzie won, I truly am that bad at that game. There's no <laughs> there's no rigging going on.
4: <laughs> I'm still shocked because I like play the games along with you mm-hmm. and so I know you are all better at the games than
0: I am. <laughs> just depends on the game. Clearly yeah, not. yeah
4: That's true, yeah. Andrew. This was an excellent game. Good job, Good game.
0: Andrew. Yeah,
2: wonderful game. That's
1: Andrew. An
0: excellent job, Oh, Lizzie. I have the
1: number, actually. Bailey, you have 5,153 points. Toby, it still won't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, Google Maps is just
2: like, don't do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to go to this cryptozoology museum next time I'm in town. Yeah, there you go. Thank you so much, Lizzie, for coming. Thank you for killing the game. And everybody yeah. go buy Fat Witch Summer. Yay! Yay! Yay. Yay. Now's the time on the podcast where dylan gets to shine it's dylan which summer it's time for dylan to choose books at <laughs> random from our shelves to read next it's time for the choosing.
3: the choosing. well toby i don't like your tone <laughs> we're gonna have to you know think really really hard use all the different parts of your body to guess what your book is use your brain your bones your blood you have number 40 wise blood by Flannery o'connor
2: Oh, all right. I was staying firmly in the grim, gritty section of the library, but uh, I'm excited. Just in case, os that name seems familiar. It's tickling your brain. Uh, Flannery O'Connor is a Southern author, most famous for her short story that you probably read in high school, A Good Man is Hard to Find. So I'm very excited to read this.
0: Excellent. Peacocks.
3: And Bailey. I thought we <laughs> have to do
2: a road trip to
3: Portland, Maine, Alaska, and Idaho and everything. We should probably get looking already. I'll check Expedia. Okay. Because you have number 41 Hotel New Hampshire by John Irving.
0: Ah, okay.
2: Oh. This
0: is one I've had on the list forever. When I was in high school, I went through a big John Irving kick. <laughs>
2: There's never been a more Bailey sentence than that. <laughs> well, that's just what all the teenage girls are reading. I
0: know, I know. I read maybe like four of his books, and then I had this one because, you know, it's well-known and well-loved. But then as time went on, I wonder if my opinion of John Irving stays the same. Um, mm. But I haven't read yeah. that. I'm excited to see. Okay, well, that means in two weeks, Andrew will be reading The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Oh, yeah. And I'll be reading Hotel New Hampshire by John Irving. Thanks for listening to The To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the story graph at The To Read List Podcast.
1: And if you want to help us find new listeners, a great way to do that is to give us a rating and a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Five stars, please, because I heard if you rate our podcast
2: five stars, you will suddenly have magical powers. (laughs) This -hmm. is not guaranteed. And while you're traveling across a deeply magical yet recognizable United States with a car full of friends, tell them to shut up for a second while you tell them about our podcast, because telling your friends and your family and anyone you know about the podcast is a great way to get us new listeners. People really trust it when it comes from you, especially if you hold your hand over their mouth while you tell them about it.
0: (laughs) Took a dark turn. Okay.
2: Yeah, it did.
0: (laughs) Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sounding recording to Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our song and to Lizzie Ives for coming on the podcast. Uh. Yay. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books.